The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Ezra Klein, co-host of the Weeds, Vox.com's podcast on the, the Panoply Network, and I've got something fun and unusual for you today. In February, I'm launching a long-form interview podcast. I, I really love long-form interviews and have wanted to do this for a while, and, and so I've been starting to do some with folks I think are really interesting, newsmakers, politicians, writers, and someone I was really excited to talk to was Ross Douthit. He's an op-ed writer from the New York Times, youngest op-ed writer in their history, just a really phenomenal thinker and uh, unusual, uh, a guy with a sort of an unusual approach to politics, but also someone with, I think, a skill as a writer and a, a political analyst that is really rare today, which is an ability to speak to an audience that doesn't agree with him in a way that, that they are really willing to hear him out and, and engage in an extended conversation that they want to keep coming back for. So we had a, a great discussion, talked a lot about you know his, his background, how he got into politics, how he got into writing, and how he thinks about writing for this audience. Something I'd love from you all is to give me some feedback on this. As I mentioned, I'm launching a separate podcast that will be devoted to interviews like this one in a couple weeks. And I'd love to hear what you liked, hear what you didn't like. I'm trying to figure out my own style and, and what is going to be of most value to, to you, the listeners. So you can email me at weeds at box.com and let me know what you think. Let me know the kinds of people you'd like to see me interview. Let me know what you liked here and what you didn't like. I'd love to get your feedback. I'm, I'm trying to think hard about how this should go, such that it is useful for you all and fun for me. So without further ado, here's Ross. Really enjoyed this conversation. Really hope you do too. Ross, you're, you're 36, I think it is, I am, right? I am now 36, yes. You're 36. So you are the, the youngest Time's Up Ed columnist by, I think, like seven decades. <laughs> Tell me, I, I want to, how did you... At a yeah, certain point, well, that's well, going to become, you know, when I'm like 56 and people are introducing it, me as the youngest ever Times op-ed columnist. Right. It's going to get a little. In fact, as I've lost my hair, it's gotten more. <laughs> it's gotten stranger and stranger as an introduction. Well, I recognize you really trying to sort of aesthetically get into the role, which bespeaks admirable commitment. But but what was your first job in journalism? Where does the the path to op-ed columnist begin? Um, well, my first actual job in journalism was working as a editorial researcher for The Atlantic. And I got that job out of college sort of by happenstance because the then and now owner of The Atlantic, David Bradley, was at that point starting a kind of satellite office for the magazine in Washington, D.C. At, at that point, The Atlantic was still based in Boston, where it had been for 150 years. And so they needed to get a they needed warm They needed warm down. bodies. Well, well, <laughs> David Bradley had he he made his fortune in healthcare consulting, um, and in healthcare consulting, as in many forms of consulting, I think the theory is you hire a bunch of people straight out of college um, who are theoretically smart and cheap, and you work them into the ground, and you you know use whatever they produce to um, turn a profit and. Um, David Bradley was looking for ways to make the Atlantic profitable, and I guess this seemed like the way to do it, maybe. <laughs> it wasn't. My, our little editorial group <laughs> did not, in fact, make the magazine profitable. That was left to other people years down the line. But we were hired. There were about five or six of us. It was a very unusual job in that we were sort of – we were almost like consultants. We were sort of wargaming potential features for the magazine and without doing any of the sort of writing, we were trying to come up with feature ideas and so on. So it was a sort of 
attempt to build a kind of miniature consulting shop huh. onto a magazine. And in addition to not making the magazine profitable, it didn't, I think, ultimately succeed because, as you know, being a journalist, actual journalists are pretty resistant to the idea that there's a group of 23-year-old guys and girls down in Washington, D.C., who have all these ideas about that's, how they should run their magazine. Um, that's, ama- that's an amazing – I had no idea that's what that job was at that time. I mean, so well, we had these I, not, weird... not everybody here will be in journalism, but for an editorial assistant job is very rarely coming up with feature ideas for more senior writers. That is a very a fascinating kind of inversion of the totem pole. Well, and we would do other things. You would come up with a potential feature, and then you would call prominent journalists to ask what they thought about it. And so once there was this idea, maybe The Atlantic should run unsigned editorials. And I was tasked with calling various distinguished journalists to ask them what they thought of it. And I made the mistake of calling Jack Schaefer, who is, of course, the <laughs> notoriously acerbic press critic who I'm not sure if he'd written about David Bradley at that point, but he had written things about wealthy people owning magazines and the cycle that they go through and so on, things that are, I guess, newly relevant in the age of Chris Hughes selling The New Republic. But so I called up Jack Schaefer and said, oh, I'm calling. We're thinking about doing this. And, you know, Jack Schaefer, he just started ranting about how horrible (laughs) unsigned editorials were and they were the dumbest idea. And he, you know, he probably went on for like 20 minutes before I got a word in. And And, and by the way, to bring it to bring it for a full circle to the Hughes News, one of the his sins at the New Republic to kind of the New Republic old guard was he got rid of the magazine's unsigned editorials. Well, right. So he and yeah, where is the Jack Schaefer column then lamenting Chris Hughes' revolutionary (laughs) impact on, on the New Republic? But yeah, so that was the job. It was a strange job. And we had strange titles. We weren't editorial assistants. Our title, I think, was editorial analyst, which is a title that has never existed before in journalism and I don't think has existed since. But yeah, so that's that was sort of how I started out. And it was sort of unexpected because in college I had been, I guess, in sort of a foretaste of my current career. I had been both the editor of the conservative newspaper at Harvard and the token conservative op-ed columnist for the Harvard Crimson. And so I had I had interned at National Review and I sort of expected to take a job in conservative media, but I wasn't offered any jobs in conservative media. And I was obviously a huge admirer of The Atlantic. It was the Michael Kelly era, which I think was a high point in the magazine and really any magazine's history. And so I leaped at the chance to go work there, but it was completely unexpected. If you'd asked me junior year, senior year where I was likely to end up working and writing, I would have imagined it would be National Review or the Weekly Standard or something like that. Go if ahead. I remember this period in, in, in suit of your work correctly, and, and I very much may not. But the early oeuvre? The, the, early, the early doubt that. At the same time, you had a blog called The American Scene, right? This was about that same time. Yes. Well, so, right. This was the time when everyone was starting blogs, when it was sort of the it, thing. It was a cool thing to do. It was do the cool thing in. to do. But we, I actually wasn't. When are we? Oh, three? This was 2003. Oh, yeah. But I yeah. wasn't any good at it at first. I started one with a friend of mine named Steve Menashe, who was then the assistant editor at Policy Review, a now defunct conservative intellectual magazine. And it was called The American Scene, and I thought it had, by the standards of blogs at that time, this very handsome interface. We had a little graphic of Uncle Sam rolling up his sleeves, and we started blogging, but then (laughs) the Iraq War— Sounds terrible. It it was—you know, no, it was—we had a little version of Arts and Letters Daily running down the right-hand column where we would just have short links. It was very pretentious. I do remember that. I liked your your right-hand link bar. That was good. You know, pretension is the key. And we didn't want to call it a blog because obviously that was— was sort of crude and, you know, anyone could start a a blog. More of a web magazine? 
we were a a, a a journal maybe i i don't know it was it was totally pretentious <laughs> and ridiculous but it also sort of semi died during the iraq war in part because I had been sort of generally supportive of the Iraq war, and then I had a friend. It was actually kind of a cliche. I had two friends, one who worked at the Defense Department, who was very much in favor of the war, and one who worked at the State Department, who was completely against it. And they were friends with each other, so I would sort of watch them have these titanic arguments. And at some point, basically right around the time we pulled down the statue of Saddam, I sort of decided that maybe my State Department friend was right. Uh, <laughs> and that sort of – and the, but then I had basically – you know, everyone was writing about foreign policy. I was a 23-year-old recent college graduate living in a group house in Washington, D.C. I wasn't embedded with the military anywhere. I wasn't sort of an expert in anything. And so it, it was the only time in my life when I found that sort of the news – defeated my capacity to come up with what we now call hot takes on it. So I sort of we sort of let the blog lapse and instead I went sort of back to my college roots and ended up writing a book about Harvard which is of course the most obnoxiously Harvard thing to do. But that so that was what I did while I was in this strange job at the Atlantic. I had a blog that sort of flared and then seemed to vanish and I wrote a book and I thought, you know, when you write your first book, you're like, well, this book will be a massive bestseller and I will go on to a career as a literary eminence who never <laughs> has to take orders from editors again. And that didn't happen either. And so at that point, I then... Can I stop you on the book yeah. for a minute, though? It's probably going too far to say it's a tradition. But certainly, legendarily, William F. Buckley, who's kind of, you know, the, the great conservative founder of the National Review, wrote also a book about the kind of experience of being a conservative outsider at Harvard and, and the, the complicated feelings he had about the institution. And, and I'm curious at Yale, how much... At Yale. We don't want to, oh, he was we Yale, don't want to offend I, the Buckley memory by associating right. with Harvard. But how much was that in your head when you did that? It was, of course, in my head. But, you know, being, again, this sort of arrogant 23 or 24-year-old, what you're thinking to yourself is, well, Buckley wrote God and Man at Yale. And, you know, that was a pretty good book. But, you know, God <laughs> and Man at Yale was just about, and it really was just about the sort of academic intellectual climate at Yale in the 50s. It was all about de-Christianization on Ivy League campuses and the influence of sort of socialist and collectivist thought. And it wasn't particularly about undergraduate life. And so I thought that I could basically do what Buckley did and also do a more sort of memoiristic personal account of what this weird – and Ivy League schools are incredibly weird – place is actually like and how it influences and shapes American life. So that was sort of – the book I set out to write was supposed to be you know, one part God and Man at Yale and one part you know, a sort of more personal – memoir. And I think that's why the book in part ended up being maybe, let's say, not a complete success. I don't want to undersell my own, of course, brilliant work. But it was a sort of uneasy hybrid, I guess, of sort of it, memoir it and very, argument. It had a very prescient title, though. Uh, the, the book was called Privilege, right? Yes. Harvard and, Harvard and the Education of the Ruling Class was the subtitle. And years later, the discussion of privilege has become, I think, pretty central to a lot of, you know, sort of internet political discourse, but it's at this point primarily associated with liberal critiques of power uh, or of certain kinds of power. And as I remember the book, it is kind of very much about that, right? It's very much about what the advantages of, of Harvard confer on you. Right. And it was about the contemporary university has no conservatives, has no conservatives in the faculty. It has some conservatives in the student body, but a large chunk of them are sort of 
kids whose parents were Republicans who then just sort of naturally become more liberal on campus because the climate is pretty liberal. And what that means is that the arguments that go on on elite campuses for the most part, and you know, there are exceptions, but for the most part are arguments between what back then I guess you would have called new republic liberals versus the nation liberals. But you know, it's between right. the center left and the left. And when I was in college, way back when, the center left was completely ascendant. It was the late years of Clinton, the end of the dot-com boom, but we didn't know it was the end of the dot-com boom then. Uh, you know, it was an era when basically you could say, well, why should I even bother to take an economics class? Alan Greenspan has everything figured out, right? And and the campus left, you know, was still active. There was, you know, was sit-ins. They occupied the president's office to protest for a living wage for Harvard janitors. But it was nothing like it is today. There was none of this sense that you have today of sort of a more ascendant and sort of aggressive left actually dictating terms to campus leaders and administrators and so on. The well, sense it d- was it much depend, more... It depends was, on where you went. I went to UC Santa Cruz. Okay. Well, right. Well, California <laughs> we remains when, its own distinctive place, even in the I heyday was, of neoliberalism. When I was there, we were the first city council in the country to pass articles of impeachment for George W. Bush, which Somebody I don't had think quite had... First. I don't think quite had the domino effect the Santa Cruz City Council was looking for, but was was at the time taken as a, as a real point of pride. And it's been fascinating for me to watch this kind of rising belief that the left has become so dominant on campus because a lot of what's being described as a new reality now is is very recognizable to me from being at Santa Cruz for, for better and for worse. Some of it seems to me to be the terror people have of it. I was sort of a New Republic liberal, as you put it in college and was a little bit contrarian in a place that was very, very, very liberal. And it didn't seem incredibly stifling to me, but it did seem to me not always the healthiest exchange of ideas. Well, right. But the interesting thing, and to get back to your point about privilege that I found as a conservative at the time, and and again, I still find this in certain ways today, is that as a conservative watching that left versus center left debate on campus, on the one hand, you don't want to side with the left because the left basically wants your ideas banned from campus completely, and not just from campus, obviously, but also to today campus, tomorrow the world. But when the revolution comes. When the right? revolution comes. But by the same token, there is a sense in which the left-wing narrative on elite campuses is, you know, and has become more so, is powerful for a reason. And there is a sort of is and was a kind of emptiness to the neoliberal university, the university of perpetual fundraising and career offices that shunned everybody into consulting jobs and, you know, this sort of lip service to ideas about diversity and multiculturalism and so on that really do end the instant you go to your dean and say, well, you know, one of my friends might have been raped. (laughs) What does the university want to do about it? And the university is like, well, we would really rather not do anything about that because that (laughs) sounds really messy and unpleasant. And and that was, you know, this was a point that the campus left was making in 2001. And based on some personal experiences, they were correct. And I don't think they're correct in the sort of what you might call the cosmic sense, because as a conservative, I think that left-wing ideas have contributed in their own way to what gets described as sort of rape culture on campus, that it is in part a somewhat inevitable consequence of straightforward sexual libertinism. But at the same time, it's at least 
the big Lebowski thing, right? It's like say what you will about the tenants of the campus left, but at least they have an ethos, right? Whereas, right. <laughs> whereas the people running the universities, Harry Lewis, who was dean of, dean at Harvard when I was there and who at the time sort of seemed to me like the embodiment of this kind of emptiness, he then left the deanship and wrote a book called Excellence Without a Soul, which suggests that, you know, he had his own problems with what was going on. Right. And I think that title basically fit what I felt as the prevailing spirit of neoliberal Harvard. And it did give me a weird, occasionally admittedly kind of perverse sympathy for the campus left. Something I'm curious about your experience there, and to some degree in, in journalism more broadly, is that there tends to be a kind of conservative that that kind of technocratic liberal finds appealing, which is to say this sort of you know occasional third-party-ish idea of the socially liberal and, and fiscally conservative ideology. And, and you, get, you get people sort of Mitt Romney in Massachusetts, I think, you know, b- before he later became more, I think the term was severely conservative, was a good example as someone who was, you know, seen as being, you know, very good with the budget, but, but pretty liberal on reproductive rights. And your sort of version of this is a little you, you bit You mean baby flipped. killing, I, right? Right. That's... I, I, I did mean that. Yes. Actually. Okay. Yes. Just, just, to, just to clarify. <laughs> And your your version of this is flipped, that you're more socially conservative and, and I think you see things – you see a lot more of sort of problems in terms of the family unit and breakdowns in the family unit and a little bit more economically populist than a lot of Republicans. And I'm curious how you think being that kind of conservative was different on, on campus at that time than being the sort of reverse kind of technocratic northeastern conservative. So I came to college with some – unforged version of that perspective because I I think most young, nerdy conservatives find their way into conservatism. Some of them find their way through Ayn Rand, you might say, and some of them find their way in through J.R.R. Tolkien. You know, this is the nerdiest way I can possibly think of to put it. But I, I, think, I don't think I know that much about the J.R.R. Tolkien path. <laughs> well, the J.R.R. Tolkien path is basically where you start with cultural conservatism, you know, and, and Tolkien's Middle Earth is deeply, his perspective is deeply culturally conservative and also deeply suspicious of industrialization. It literally is the opposite of Atlas Shrugged, where in Atlas Shrugged, it's like right. the railroads <laughs> are the most amazing thing human beings have ever done. And in Middle Earth, railroads are the things that the orcs would build, you know, while tearing up all the beautiful ancient trees. My background, the reason I am conservative in some sense is because I had a sort of unusual religious upbringing where my family sort of wandered through various forms of American Christianity before we ended up as Roman Catholics in my teens. But my parents were liberal Democrats during a lot of that journey and only swung and then a little bit to the right probably because of the influence of religion. So I was coming from a place where I had this sort of religious foundation for my conservatism. And to the extent that the sort of free market side of conservatism was interesting or appealing, it was as a corollary to a effectively socially conservative set of convictions. And on campus, that was sort of in certain ways a fun place to be if you were into being, you know, weird, right? And I, I'm actually always surprised that and, and, more— And you're into being weird? If you're into being weird, right? And I, I, yeah. I'm actually always surprised that— a little surprised, at least, that more young people don't find that cocktail of ideas attractive, if only because it is 
the weirdest cocktail you can come up with. And young people are allegedly interested in coming up with weird cocktails of ideas, especially in sort of a age of neoliberal ascendancy to be a sort of conservative Catholic who liked to tell people he was a monarchist. Not that I ever did that, but hypothetically, let's say, maybe. <laughs> Somebody I knew, maybe. You know, and, and you had sort of an environment for that a little bit. You had a little more of one at Yale than at Harvard, because I, th I think Harvard is actually a little more deeply technocratic than Yale these days. And Yale has both, I think, a stronger sort of left-wing social justice presence, which you've seen manifest in the last year or two, but also has more room for sort of weird right-wing eccentrics through the Yale Political Union, these groups like the Party of the Right and so on. And had I gone to Yale, I would have been a Party of the Right weirdo. And there wasn't a Party of the Right at Harvard, so I was just a weirdo. And we sort of had our own little group and we hung out and drank and had big arguments about whether if you were alive in 1930s Europe, would you be a fascist or a communist? Because everybody was <laughs> had to be either. And, you know, and after seven... Which, which would you have been? I can't answer that question because <laughs> I'm not 21 and drunk, Ezra. Um, so it was sort of a a sort of fun way to have a kind of weird micro-identity. But it's been, you know, it's more striking in journalism, in sort of professional journalism, because there really is their journalism is it's a place where you're sort of expressing your opinions constantly. And I would say I have benefited professionally in certain ways from not being the kind of Republican that a certain type of liberal wants to say that they like because it's made me seem distinctive and exotic and possibly worth publishing and arguing with, I guess. <laughs> but I think something about the, the way you publish and argue, and I know this skips ahead a, a little bit, but in the way that you publish and argue is that you are, I think, probably the best writer today specifically at being able to talk to people who don't agree with you in a way that they're willing to listen to you. That You do a really, I think, phenomenal job in, in your columns kind of granting points and establishing <laughs> a sort of shared set of premises from which you can then have an argument where you, you, you often diverge quite sharply. And I'm curious how conscious that is, if you see that as a style, how long you've been developing that style for, because there are a lot of people who I think think of themselves as persuasive writers, and, and, and sometimes I think I probably include myself here, but are only persuasive to people who already agree with them, are only good at arguing in a way that people who share their premises can really hear, whereas I think of you as actually having almost the opposite specialty. Yeah, I mean, it is completely cultivated and conscious to the point where I knew it. you will actually, no, I will actually <laughs> sort of find myself rolling my eyes sometimes at my own attempted tricks where it's like, well, I've conceded these sort of meaningless points in order to, you know, in order to build the illusion of common ground, which I will then, you know, tear out from, tear out from under people. But no, I mean, I, look, I have spent my entire life surrounded by people who, disagree with me, not always and everywhere, but in high school, in college, and in my professional life, I have almost always been in environments where I was one of the few conservatives and one of the fewer conservatives who had, as we've been saying, my distinctive cocktail of ideas. And that means that basically, in order to reap what I was just claiming were the benefits of having this distinctive cocktail of ideas, I have to be able to express those ideas in ways that people who disagree with me don't don't just ignore or throw down the newspaper or 
I won't say don't fire off an angry comment underneath my columns because I'm told that occasionally there are angry comments underneath my columns. <laughs> but there might be some on Twitter too. But at least I, I, here, I don't here, there. I've heard you. about this thing called mentions on Twitter, Ezra, but I've <laughs> I've never actually looked into it for some reason. Do you, do you not look at mentions? No, I don't look at mentions. I've not looked at mentions on Twitter for four years. That's and I'm proud that to say seems that. very wise because it's all just me making cracks about utilitarianism and Vox, basically. Um, I'm sure it is, yes. That's, that's all you're mentioning. And I know you're a big utilitarian. A lot of, a lot of at mentions at Dylan. Yeah, Dylan, uh, yeah, Dylan are, Matthews. Our yeah. chief utilitarianism correspondent. Yes. It's a, good, it's a good beat to have. But no, I mean, no, that's sort of a interesting thing about the – like I, I do sort of manage my consumption of – sort of social media in a way that means that I'm not really using it in sort of the truly social sense. I have a group of people I follow on Twitter and I interact with that group of people and that group of people is not incredibly carefully chosen but reasonably carefully chosen in order to avoid sort of slowly driving myself mad, which is Well, I think it goes in – I think it can kill you in both ways too. I mean it's not just that I think mentions can be, you know, a – channel of incredible hate, but it can also be a channel of incredible praise, of which I think neither is particularly healthy for one's psyche to be absorbing. I mean, getting addicted to that kind of people you don't know saying nice things or people you don't know saying terrible things is probably not a great way to measure your self-worth on a minute-to-minute basis. Right. But yeah, getting back to your sort of original question, I am very aware that if I didn't write in the form that you sort of discerned me writing in, that I wouldn't be a very good conservative columnist for the New York Times. I wouldn't be reaching the vast majority of the readership. I wouldn't be interesting to the vast majority of the readership. And I wouldn't be either serving my own ideas well or the you know interests of the newspaper and having an interesting op-ed columnist. So there's a sense in which you know, I'd like I'd like to tell you that this is my deep high mindedness and commitment to dialogue at work, but it's also <laughs> just you know it's a, it's like everything in our profession. It's careerist. I value my job at the times. I value my the opportunities that that affords. But in order to do that job well, I have to maintain or try to maintain a a sort of dialogic style in most cases. And then occasionally, and hopefully it's this makes it more effective, occasionally you drop the dialogic style when you want to, you know, really shock people or, or make them jump a little bit. But again, sort of hopefully dropping that style for shock effect is a little more shocking when most of the time you're being more measured and temperate and moderate and so on. To the degree that some of this is, as you say, a little calculated, do you think that the work of it makes it easier in the other direction? Do you think the work of putting yourself through the practice of saying, okay, here's what, here's where I can sort of stand on shared ground with people I don't really agree with, do you think putting in that practice sort of day to day actually makes it easier for you to read and absorb and, and hear ideas from, from people you don't agree with? I mean, do you think that you've ended up with a little bit more of an open channel of sort of an ability to change your mind a bit more than the average columnist? Or do you think that that ideological core is uh, is unaffected by that effort? I don't know. I don't know how much I've changed my mind. Like I change my mind a lot on foreign policy, but that's an area where I don't have sort of particularly strong priors. I don't have sort of deep commitment to a worldview. So it's easy, you know, it's easy to change your mind in areas where you don't have those kind of deep commitments. And on the sort of issues that I'm 
arguing with people about sort of most passionately. I, I do think I have a strong appreciation for the liberal worldview broadly defined on most fronts. And I think that I understand it about as intimately as an outsider can understand it. I'm not 100% sure if that makes me more likely to change my mind on any particular issue. Because obviously on sort of the core issues that define social conservatism or religious conservatism or what have you, I haven't changed my mind. And I've been at the Times for a while and in this business for a while longer. So if this kind of thing did lead to deep tectonic shifts... I'm assuming that it would have happened already. In terms of sort of an issue like, you know, what is the optimal design for a particular kind of anti-poverty program, I think that I am very open to changing my mind. And that hopefully shows up in the writing I do. Who are the writers who, when you see their name, you really make a point to read them? Like a lot of people now, I sort of get my material through my curated Twitter feed that Actually, I shouldn't say like a lot of people now. Probably now all the cool kids are getting their information through whatever. Snapchat. Pe- Peach, right? Is Peach the new? Peach. Is that, is that where, is that I, where I, the staff of Vox gets there? I need to commission someone on my staff to do a Peach explainer so I so can that you can figure is. out what it is. Yeah. Right? No, this is the this, this is, is how the, I learn about pop this culture. This is now. the genius of your job, Esra. You can actually <laughs> have it have it explained to you in the editing process. So I I have a lot of people I follow on Twitter. And it's sort of a blend of campaign reporters, a lot of my fellow op-ed columnists, and and then a sort of set of opinion journalists from the wider world. And you sort of use that as a filter, I guess. It's sort of, you know, and, and this is where it obviously can become a cocoon too, but you're sort of seeing what other people say is interesting. And what you're looking for, I think, the, you know, the model would be Someone like Tyler Cowen, who always gets cited in these kind of conversations, but right. but deservedly. And I still use his blog, Marginal Revolution, for this. I know blogs are sort of old school and passe, but I go to Marginal Revolution because I know that— No, they're coming back. They're the, coming the, the back. The cool thing now is to lament blogs and, right. and, no, and, and then, talk about and, how you've gone back to them. Yeah. So then, yeah, so Tyler links to interesting things. And having a certain number of people like that— gives you basically, I think, the supplement that you need to reading the New York Times and the Washington Post and a sort of... But but then, you know, there, there are also certain areas of... Like, I write a lot about religion, and in particular these days, I write a lot about Catholicism. So there are five to ten people who write about the Catholic Church who I am reading, and then they in turn link to other things, and that forms sort of my wider diet. But that means a sort of, you know, someone like John Allen, who started this uh, website for the Boston Globe on the Catholic Church. I was reading John Allen before he was at the Globe, and I read him now, and he's sort of one of my five or six conduits to all things Catholic. And there's a guy named Edward Penton at the National Catholic Register who's sort of the conservatives' version of John Allen. And then there's probably someone who's the liberals' version of John Allen. And then there are some reporters, you know, some European reporters and so on. So you do that on particular issues. And I mean, you obviously know this well. When the Obamacare debate is going on, you'll have five or six or, you know, 15 or 20, however many people who are writing about healthcare policy who you're reading while this is going on, and then maybe you're reading them less when that debate subsides a little bit. So you probably read Nicholas Bagley and Avic Roy a lot at certain moments and less at other moments, right? So there's a certain amount of that too. I read them religiously. Well, you read everything at all times, (laughs) right? 
No, 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 no. But you're 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 definitely right about the way. You, one thing that I think Twitter is really good for is spinning up and spinning down information streams. So, for instance, a, a, an example is for me is when you know we were in the red line debate about Syria. I kind of built like a 45 or 55 person Twitter feed or Twitter list of sources on Syria. Some of them were foreign reporters. Some of them were people inside Syria. Some of them were think tankers. Some of them were foreign policy pundits. And when that issue erupts again, I tend to sort of put that back in rotation. And, and when it's quieter, I tend to check it less. Yeah. And then you also want you also want to be able to pull back, which is something that our media age doesn't do very well. So one way to do that, and I don't always pull this off, but if you subscribe to, let's say, the London Review of Books, the New York Review of Books, the Claremont Review of Books, and now maybe the LA Review of Books or something, and you make that part of your media diet, you are adding a layer of distance from current events without getting all the way up to the level of reading all the 1,000-page books that are reviewed <laughs> in those publications. But that's the kind of thing, too, that I think really helps with column writing, that you know, the sort of easiest column to write, at least for me, is the kind of horse race, who's up, who's down column in presidential yeah, politics. Yeah, but you feel – I don't know about you. I, I do that, and, and particularly since starting Vox, I, will, I think that my writing has become, in ways I don't like, more – reactive to sort of the political news of the day, right? It's more about, you know, what do people think of Donald Trump right now? Because the truth is you can you can do that pretty easily. But you feel you feel a little bad about yourself after. Did the world really need another Trump thought from from Ezra Klein? And the answer is almost <laughs> well, the world. Not. Well, with Trump, though, I mean, Trump is such a gift to our industry that yes. I, I don't think you can really these kind of gifts well, let's say hopefully don't come along every election cycle. But I, but when I, I when that, I when I think about 2012, right, versus this cycle. In 2012, to cover the 2012 election, I think this was true for liberals too, because Obama was running a kind of dispiriting, call Mitt Romney a murderer and promised to not change Obamacare, and that's about it kind of campaign. But the, the Republican campaign was pretty awful to write about. The debates were entertaining, but the, there were no real ideological stakes. You had this parade of absurd candidates who clearly weren't going to beat Mitt Romney, or I thought they clearly weren't going to beat Mitt Romney. And they didn't really represent sort of clear factions or new directions for the party. They were just sort of variations on this kind of angry anti-Obamaism. And then the general election campaign was basically Romney operating under the delusion that he could just win by not being Obama and promising to get the economy moving again. I was a long slog to come up with regular <laughs> columns and takes on what was going on in that campaign. See, I disagree. Whereas Trump, okay, well, you will t tell me. I mean, tr to me, Trump. A tr I mean, in the Republican side, if we end up with a Trump Cruz Rubio race, this is deeply ideologically interesting. It represents clear, different, divergent directions for the Republican Party, and Trump himself is a new and fascinating thing in American politics and who's connected to developments in Europe and so on. And those developments are scary in many ways and unfortunate. But in terms of <laughs> in terms of something to write about, it's just a lot more interesting than Herman Cain and Michelle Bachman and, you know, whatever the Obama binders full of woman line of the moment is going to be. A hundred percent what you say about there being a fascinating question about directions in the Republican Party and, and Trump himself just being an absolutely maniacally bizarre, interesting car crash of a human being slash candidate. You're clearly right about that. Approach to column writing, particularly during campaigns, is that 
I look for things that are getting a bit of attention, the kind of gaff of the day, and try to use them to pivot to things I would prefer to write about instead. And so what I found in 2012 was because there was not one single story or one single personality that was quite so dominant, it was a very open field for writing about candidate policy plans. I mean, I <laughs> I think I look at the, the, the debate over whether Mitt Romney's tax plan could add up without raising taxes on the middle class the way a lot of people do. <laughs> The Trump debate, for me, that was the, the best of times. And what I've found in this campaign, just from my sort of very parochial perspective on this, is that this story has remained very steady. The dominance of a couple of personalities, and really primarily Trump, has made it seem almost ridiculous to write about policy proposals in a way that's not true in other campaigns. I mean, something about Trump that is, I think, a little bit implicit in the way many in the media cover him is that writing about Trump's policies almost feels like a category error. Yes, and, I think and that's I tend right. To be, I tend to be pretty aggressive about saying that we should be taking candidates at face value, that, that there's good political science evidence that candidates try to follow their campaign promises. But writing about how Trump's $10.5 trillion tax plan doesn't add up, I mean, I don't think he thinks it adds right. up or frankly cares even if he, he does have an opinion one way or the other. Well, I think you're right. Trump is a better story. There's no doubt about that than anything that happened in 2012. I also think it's a story that in some way hasn't changed, that doesn't have a lot of information and certainly not a lot of new information associated with it. And so there's a tremendous amount of coverage of it, but very little coverage in which anybody says anything new. And so uh, while I am riveted by Trump, I'm really pretty bored by most Trump coverage, which is really just endless variations of journalists kind of scratching their heads at this point and being like, could this could this fucking thing really happen? Now, yeah, now it is. I, I think that we that there was and has been a sort of series of interesting waves of takes on Trump. Sure. I mean, the amount of, you know, argument generated by something like David Frum's cover story in The Atlantic about the roots of Trumpism. I think you can't get from Trump to like deeply meaningful policy debates, but you can get from Trump to important sociological debates about America and American politics that have some impact on policy. I mean, with Trump, it's a category error to parse his plans to see if their details all make sense. It's not a category error to say it matters that Trump is vehemently anti-immigration, wants to rewrite trade deals, wants to protect Medicare and Social Security, and so on down a slightly longer list. All of those things, even if the details don't matter, the fact that he's staking out those positions tells you something. The fact that he's you know, so against the Iraq war and boasts about being against the Iraq war and so on, that he's saying those things and winning support in the Republican primary and generally tells you interesting things about the future of the Republican Party and the future of American politics. It's just, yeah, you don't get to have the debate about whether his tax plan adds up. But I do think, I mean, one, you shouldn't complain too much. You've got, you know, Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton are actually going to have 100%. an interesting And we are having good debates debate. about shadow banking right now. Well, right. No, I mean, and, and you know, single payer, Hillary's, what Absolutely. Was Hillary just said, you know, was sort of attacking single payer on this weird sort of, you know, devolving it to the state's basis. So that's there. And once you get to the general election, unless it's Trump, Ted Cruz has staked out a very interesting 
tax plan, basically unlike any tax plan that the Republican nominee has campaigned on before. It, Marco Rubio has a lot of policy ideas that he's not talking about right now, but will if he's actually the nominee and so on. So I wouldn't lose hope, Ezra. There's still, no, there's still I, time I for, and, for, for you to have your moment of glory. And, and something I think that this has been uh, an interesting demonstration of, and this will be true whether it's Trump or, or Rubio or Cruz or, or Christie or whomever else might might win the, the election, where I do think I do think coverage is really going to change because I think that the fundamental story of the campaign so far, the fundamental animating, motivating force of most coverage has been, can this thing happen? And it, Yes. I mean, that was the, literally you, you, the last column I wrote, but one was sort of, can this thing happen? <laughs> and and one, one frustrating thing about that is that if you write about what happens if this thing actually happens, you end up just in another argument about, can this thing happen? I mean, there have been, I think, reasonably interesting debates between sort of Dave Weigel and Nate Silver, where Silver argues that everybody's giving too much coverage to Trump just based on polls, which are not as predictive as many in the media want to think. And Weigel argues a point I think related to yours and that I'm that I'm I think a bit more sympathetic to, which is that this is an important story whether or not Trump wins. But I think people are going to get more willing to kind of think through the possibilities of these outcomes once you know the, the field either winnows down to one or two or three people which I think to some degree it has in truth, if not in practice, and then much more so once we get a nominee. Because this will be, I think even if it's Rubio at this point, this is going to be the sharpest ideological divergence between two major party nominees in a, in a really long time. I mean, I think the difference even between Marco Rubio and Hillary Clinton is significantly larger than the difference between Mitt Romney or John McCain and Barack Obama See, was. I, I'm actually not 100 percent sure that's true. I think it depends on how much how Rubio ends up evolving in reaction to Trump and Cruz and also how much weight you place on the plausibility of Rubio's tax plan. Basically, Rubio Rubio's domestic policy consists of a very implausible tax plan that is extremely deficit increasing. But then all the other stuff, he's actually closer, I think, to a certain kind of center than Romney or McCain was. He's His would-be Obamacare replacement would expand health coverage much more than Romney's would have. His Social Security reform plan is less sort of less enamored of privatization than George W. Bush's reform plan. And you, you could you could go down the list on anti-poverty stuff and so on. There's I think that he consciously moved to the center on domestic policy. Then on foreign policy, I think if it's Hillary against I mean, again, if it's Bernie Sanders against Marco Rubio, you will have, yes, one of the clearest foreign policy distinctions. But if it's Hillary versus Rubio, I mean Rubio is very hawkish. And he's probably slightly more hawkish than Romney, but he's no more hawkish than McCain. And Hillary comes from the more hawkish wing of her party. So I, I think that unless Rubio sort of takes on a lot more Trumpism, and, and even there, I mean, this is what's interesting too, is that, you know, we were talking earlier about this sort of idea of the moderate Republican, the, you know, who's sort of socially liberal and fiscally conservative and so on, that a lot of liberals are, are enamored of. Trump is a certain kind of moderate Republican. He's mm -hmm. not the kind of moderate Republican that people thought they would get. But he's, uh, you know, if you, if you strip out the rhetoric around race and religion in his immigration stuff, 
and you strip out, again, the sort of ludicrous tax plan and so on, you have a guy who's running against Republican orthodoxy on everything from entitlements to, in his rhetoric at least, taxes to trade and so on, and, and who is appealing to a mix of voters that includes a lot of very hard right voters, but also includes a lot of pretty secular northeastern economic moderates. And that, I mean, that's part of why Trump is such a wild card in the primary, is that his coalition doesn't look like normal Republican coalitions. So he's competitive with Ted Cruz in the South, and he'd be competitive with Marco Rubio or Chris Christie in the Northeast. And then he's not competitive at all in the West and the High Plains. It's just sort of a strange dynamic. But again, if you had a Hillary versus Trump race, it's not like Ted Cruz. Ted Cruz gets you that sharp ideological contrast, I think. Ted Cruz gets you as close as we could get to a sort of Goldwater LBJ race. But Rubio doesn't. And Trump is just such so sui generis that, you know, and this is why Republicans are right to, you know, the sort of smart Republicans are like, well, if, if he's a nominee, you know, he'll he'll say anything to get elected, right? He's not going to be campaigning on conservative principles in August if in order to beat Hillary, he needed to, you know, turn out a different set of the electorate. I think it'll be really interesting, whoever it is, but I don't know if you'll get that incredibly stark ideological contrast. So are you, are you, do you find the Republican Party right now congenial for you? Well, weirdly, I find it more congenial than I did in 2012. Yes, in a bunch of different senses. Again, as I was saying earlier, in 2012, Mitt Romney ran the most conventional, traditional Republican campaign you can imagine. His tax plan was the, you know, a sort of boring conventional Republican tax plan that any recent Republican nominee could have run on. He, I mean, I think you may have written this yourself. He didn't have that many policy <laughs> ideas in general. No, not that many. And his narrative was just, you know, business is good, entrepreneurs are good, um, you know, moochers are bad, uh, you know, you didn't build that and so on. I mean, it was just a very sort of conventional pro-business, get America working again kind of Republican campaign. And then all the people running against him were just sort of ideologically empty and mostly motivated by various forms of sort of anti-Obama zeal. And since I'm someone who thought the Republican Party needed some new ideas and who had sort of sympathies with the populist wing of the party but thought it needed some more ideological consistency and so on, what's going on this time around is much, much more interesting. And the, the difficulty I have is that my own views on foreign policy and domestic policy don't match up perfectly with the way the factions currently match up. So the sort of reform-minded conservatives who, let's say, Marco Rubio is associated with on domestic policy tend to be more, a little bit too hawkish for my taste on foreign policy. And I have a little more in common on foreign policy with the sort of Ted Cruz to Rand Paul side of the party, which is more skeptical of nation building, more skeptical of sort of foreign occupations and so on. But that wing of the party is then a little bit more too libertarian and sort of stringently limited government-ish for my taste on domestic policy. In that sense, I struggle sometimes to sort of find the Republican faction that I'm most perfectly aligned with or something. But in terms of having ideas in the mix that I'm genuinely interested in, in spite of the absence of sort of nitty gritty policy debate, I think this 
cycle has been really, really interesting. And, and that extends you... to, to Trumpism, which is, in a sense, a response to the blue-collar disillusionment with the Republican Party that was the basis of the argument that Raihan Salam and I made in Grand New Party. In a sense, Trump is basically a version of what, what you get if Republicans don't address <laughs> the issues that we were writing about, right? That, right. He's kind of the dark side of your your argument. Yes, absolutely. The, Trump, the, the Trump sort of monster is, under the bed. Trump is a kind, you know, we had this term that we stole from Tim Pawlenty of all people, Sam's Club Republicans, right? That the Republican Party is now more the party of Sam's Club than the party of the country club. Well, Donald Trump is the dark face of Sam's Club Republicanism. But you can't just make that dark face go away by screaming fascist at it. You have to actually address the concerns and anxieties that that are making it popular. To go back to something you said a second ago, why do you think? Because I've been I've been fascinated by this as well. Why do you think this sort of conservative reformer movement, the the sort of one that's begun trying to think very hard about what do you do about poverty, about about how do you reform some of these social programs, why do you think that has kind of simultaneously trended in a much more hawkish direction? Um, that's a sort of interesting question, and I'm not a hundred percent sure of the answer. Some of it just has to do with the sort of sociology of technocracy, you might say, that the kind of people who have a bias towards action in various forms maybe have that bias in foreign and domestic policy alike. The critique of reform conservatives from the right is that we're just sort of right-wing social engineers who don't believe sufficiently in the power of liberty. And whether that critique is fair or not, it does get at an important point, which is that reform conservatives tend to be conservatives who think government can do things and government policies can do things that make the country a better place. And we should think about politics in those terms sometimes in addition to keeping in mind sort of more abstract concerns about individual liberty and, and so on. And so when you translate that into foreign policy, it maybe isn't completely surprising that conservatives who are a little more comfortable with an active government at home are also more comfortable with a interventionist social engineering abroad, again, to use the sort of language of critique there. And this is why, you know, the sort of consistently libertarian position is consistently libertarian for a reason, right? It's the idea that, well, the government doesn't know enough to make things better at home and certainly doesn't know enough to make things better in Iraq. That is, I think, part of it. Another part of it is that the there's a sense in which some of the impetus behind reform conservatism is connected to the impetus behind compassionate conservatism, the sort of George W. Bush version. And I think there are some important differences, or at least I would like there to be some important differences. Both of them are in part influenced by religious ideas, Jewish, but especially Christian. There's sort of some influence of Catholic social teaching. There's some influence of sort of the social justice side of evangelicalism that you see in figures like Mike Gerson, the former Bush speechwriter, Pete Weiner, who now writes occasionally for the, for the Times. So, so you have a sense of sort of the moral side of government programs, public service, and so on. And that informs domestic policy. But again, it also creates a more moralistic sensibility around foreign policy with the idea being, you know, if we care about what's happening in the, in the inner city in the U.S., then we should also care about what's happening that's even worse in Syria right now where we could do something about it. So that's, that's part of it as well. Um, I think for my own part, I sort of at least claim some connection to the side of neoconservatism that was 
more skeptical of of sort of idealism in foreign policy and that you know the side of neoconservatism that in the 60s and 70s said well look we aren't anti-New Deal conservatives, but we don't think a lot of these so liberal social programs are working that well, and you know, here's what we should do instead. That side of neoconservatism also looked at sometimes at certain effects of U.S. interventionism, overzealous Wilsonianism, and so on, and made a similar critique in foreign policy. So I do think, I don't think my own worldview is entirely inconsistent. <laughs> I think it's possible to occupy this space of sort of modest skepticism in both places. But I think there are reasons why it doesn't fall out that way for most people, I guess. Do you think there are sort of Republican politicians or even sort of Republican figures right now who continue to embody that kind of skeptical neoconservatism? I would say Mike Lee of Utah is the closest figure to my own worldview that exists in in American politics right now. And Lee has, I mean, he co-sponsored Marco Rubio's tax plan. He's done a lot of work with Rubio on domestic policy, but he's also a little more libertarian around issues of national security. And he's sort of generally a little more skeptical of overseas intervention. But, and, but let me, let me but, push but on he's, one piece but of this. He, go ahead. Which is it? So I agree that I think Lee is certainly one of the most interesting Republican office holders right now and, and, and today. And he's a, for those who don't know him, he's a member of the, he was sort of a Tea Party senator, became a member of the Republican Senate leadership, has a, I think, complicated relationship with some of the more establishment guard of that, but has really become, I think, an, uh, a, a real thought idea. leader. Thought, uh, thought leader. leader. Yeah. Yeah. But, but what I think is interesting about him, and I think it's interesting about Ryan and some of the others, is that. There is a strain of conservatism which is very skeptical of government action, of what – of sort of unintended consequences, this kind of skeptical neoconservatism that you were you were referencing a couple minutes ago. And then a lot of the players who I think lay some claim to that lineage have these extremely aggressive, ambitious, multi-part plans. I mean the, the Lee Rubio tax plan, which we don't need to go into, into incredible detail in here, but – it's a complex, big tax plan of which there will be a lot of effects, many of them I think really unpredictable because a lot of what it does is really quite new. Ryan is that way too. Lee has really a raft of policies on, in different areas and it always strikes me that there is this kind of strain of thought that is simultaneously so skeptical of a certain kind of government action and then so confident in its own ability to create – more philosophically conservative replacements of similar levels of technical complexity, there's nevertheless confidence they will do what their authors believe they should do. Yeah, I think that that's a fair critique of a lot lot of conservative policy thought, yes. But it goes, I think, to the perpetual dilemma of conservatives in modern American society, which is that conservatives participate in a government and attempt to manage and reform a welfare state that was built by their and our enemies. Basically, every major government program, as liberals are wont to point out, because many of those programs are popular, were passed by Democratic presidents. And the exceptions were passed by Richard Nixon when he was sort of governing as this quasi-custodian of, of the New Deal. The dilemma for conservatives is always this tension between the sort of small C side of conservatism, which is basically would say these programs exist, they have their problems, but they work you know, reasonably well in some cases, worse in others, but you can't sort of tear them up and start afresh. 
because that would be un-small c conservative. And then the sort of more ideological side of conservatism, which says, you know, these programs were built by our enemies, right? And, you know, we should not be <laughs> imprisoned by the vision of Wilson, FDR, and LBJ. And I, what I'd say, I guess, in defense of old-fashioned neoconservatism, modern reform conservatism, and so on, is that there's an attempt to sort of find a sweet spot in between, sort of in between this sort of idea that you're just the tax collector for the welfare state, to use the line Gingrich used against Bob Dole. But you're also not people who think you're going to have a Supreme Court justice invalidate the entire New Deal tomorrow and return to the <laughs> 1927 status quo ante, right? So you're you're sort of accepting a lot of the basic parameters of the welfare state, right? And I mean, I, we don't have to get into the weeds, but the Lee Rubio tax plan, while it blows a huge hole in the deficit, and that I do think is a big problem, it accepts the progressive income tax, for instance, as a feature of, it, you know, it changes the tax brackets and so on, but it accepts the progressive income tax as the basic feature of our tax code. It accepts and expands the child tax credit as a mechanism for sort of pro-family tax policy and so on. And then the most radical thing it does is around corporate and investment taxes. But even there, you're not, not as radical as Ted Cruz's or Rand Paul's tax plan, which are much more in the vein of sort of tear up the income tax code, get rid of progressive taxation, implement a flat tax and a VAT, basically. That right. is the sort of more radical version. So in a sense, Lee Rubio is trying to be somewhere in between this sort of go along to get along <laughs> Republicanism. But but look, the, it the is- The Overton is, window has really moved on tax plans in the Republican Party. Well, in a sense, I mean, what I guess my question is, what is what's radical about Lee and Rubio's plan is that it expands the deficit so much. In terms of its actual design, it doesn't strike me as that radical. It's just a question of sort of where you're setting the rates but and so on. The most I, radical I thing argue, is zeroing out capital gains, but that doesn't even have the biggest fiscal impact, right? I so, would argue this is a problematic two-step in sort of conservative policy thought right now, which is that I don't think conservatives, Republicans in general, are taking the deficit impact, what it means to increase a deficit really seriously. One of the estimates I think is in the seven trillion range for the deficit impact. And when you talk about what it would look like to do seven trillion dollars worth of cuts in order to in order to back that up. And then you kind of look at But they're not going to the do other... seven I mean the, the question here is how much debt can we float? Not what are we right, well cut? something happens over time, right? And and right. you know so there's a question of what is the long run and what is the short run on it. But I do think those kind of those those effects actually get kind of significant, right? I mean, I, I do think it becomes this kind of thing where there is very little that is all that radical if you don't have to pay for it. And once you pay for it, then kind of the really hard trade-offs where we have to do things we haven't really done before because we haven't tried to pay for a seven trillion dollar tax plan before. I think if you if you tried to write that out and really write down the other side of the ledger, it would feel different. And I mean, you, you mentioned a second ago, well, you can float the debt. And, and look, like I'm actually not a huge deficit hawk by any means, but it was not very long ago that Republicans felt that much smaller policies that would increase the debt were putting us on a fiscal path that was incredibly radical, right, and incredibly dangerous thing and a rising tide of red ink. And, mm -hmm. you know, I think Mitt Romney put it only inches away from losing a, a free enterprise system. And, and, and there are all yes. these – then that was very radical. And then and then we sort of moved into this place right now in the Republican Party where that kind of gets – I think the smart folks like you say, don't worry, it's not going to happen. 
but you oh, know, I if don't, it's not going to happen, then we... I'd say it's unlikely to happen in that form. I, I don't right. think one should at all underestimate the capacity of the Republican Party to return to Reagan era and Bush era deficits don't matter policymaking sure. when they're back in power. I think that that is the nature of the Republican Party's institutional response to the dilemma of how, you know, how do you be a low tax party when you have this welfare state and an aging society right. and so on? The answer is you run higher deficits and then when Democrats are in power, you attack them for running overly high deficits. I think that there are ways to sort of square that circle, but not with the Rubio tax plan as it currently exists. No, I, I think that, that that tax plan is, yes, is in deep and obvious tension with the rhetoric that Republicans used against Obama in 2010 and 2011. Absolutely. So, so I want to be respectful here of your time, but but I do want to get over to the Democratic Party for, for a couple of minutes here because you wrote uh, a column before I'd say the Democratic primary kicked off in earnest, which, you know, I thought a lot about since you wrote it, which and the argument you made was that the Democratic Party is headed for a kind of internal ideological war, that it's a coalition that does not have a, a sort of deep philosophical underpinning right now and is being held together by, by personalities, and in, in this case, particularly by Hillary Clinton. And I'm curious how sort of subsequent events have altered or confirmed that for you. I mean, I think that one, when, when I think about that, I do not think Hillary Clinton has been a tremendously emotionally unifying figure for Democrats. I think Sanders has been stronger than yep. people would have expected. There's been more kind of desire for alternatives than I think was obvious when you wrote that. On the other hand, I do think that you're seeing some real evidence of of ideological tension and also a kind of real question about where you go next and, and, and where you go next in a world where Democrats don't expect to hold Congress anytime soon. So I'm curious what your what your update on that is. Yeah, I mean, I would say that like most people, I underestimated Bernie Sanders' overall appeal a little bit. But I, I also wrote that column before the email revelations really broke out. I wrote a later column afterwards still saying that I thought Hillary would be the nominee and so on. So I'm still I'm still on the hook for that for that prediction. But I, I will say that I yeah, I, I should have expected maybe, but didn't completely expect how quickly the sort of old Clintonian stench of impropriety would rise around her campaign. And I think that that has made a big difference among the cohort that is sort of leaning towards Sanders, which tends to be young, white, politically idealistic. They're not particularly enamored of a sort of transactional model of politics, which when you have sort of this, you know, again, this sort of wafts of, of scandal and impropriety, you're back to that transactional model. So, yeah, in that sense, I think Hillary was looks a little less unifying than when I wrote that. With that being said, I do also think that uh, the Sanders vote, it's not primarily voters who dislike Hillary Clinton. It's voters who wanted an alternative, who want to tug the party to the left in certain ways who want a sort of purer alternative, sort of ethically purer alternative in others. And I, I, I think that the Sanders vote will feel very comfortable rallying around Hillary Clinton when all is said and done. That is, I don't think this fissure between Sanders and Clinton is exactly the kind of fissure that I had in mind sort of dividing the Democratic Party in, in the longer run. I, I could I could be wrong. Um, so do you think that fissure, that sort of deeper ideological fissure is still present or, or do you think that the party is just either more united or less concerned with its disagreements than 
I think that that Fisher is more based on, and I mean, it exists in Sanders versus Clinton. You know, Hillary is relying on her support from Hispanics and African Americans to sort of put Sanders away, right? And the Fisher there is, it's a demographic Fisher, I'd say, in certain ways, more than an ideological Fisher. The, The Democratic Party is trying to hold together very different demographics, demographics that have a lot less in common with each other ideologically, culturally, geographically, in terms of income and education, than I think is always typical of political parties. And, you know, and the Republican Party, for all its divisions, has a more sort of coherent demographic core. Now, that coherent demographic core is itself a problem, right? All, you know, because it's shrinking and so on. All, you know, there's no... No political party is ever sort of in perfect shape forever. But the the challenge for the Democrats in the long run is can you be the party of sort of the liberal rich, the young, white, left-wing Sanders vote, and the party of this sort of complicated multicultural America that's emerging, especially in the South and West? I don't think we're actually seeing those stresses in full yet. You know, people like to say, "Well, what you know, what does the what does the Repu- what does the Democratic version of Donald Trump look like? Is Bernie Sanders the Democratic version of Donald Trump?" And the answer is no. The Democratic version of Donald Trump would be someone who could harness African. You know, Jesse Jackson was the closest to this in the '80s, right? At some point, you'll have another Jesse Jackson, except the Rainbow Coalition will be a whole lot larger and will include some piece of the voters who are currently supporting Sanders. It's that ethno-cultural fissure that I think is the biggest challenge for the Democrats going forward. And I don't think the old white socialist versus younger white, former neoliberal now sort of more comfortably left-wing, and she never was really a neoliberal anyway, Hillary Clinton. I don't think the Sanders-Clinton fissure really opens up the deeper divisions in the party. Do you think that within the sort of possibility of that ethnocultural fissure, is that an issues and interest-based fissure, or are you thinking of that as kind of more of a tone and identity fissure, right? I mean, are you saying that think it's there's more... going to be something that Black Lives Matter wants that really offends a kind of Silicon Valley rich, or are you saying that— Both. I, I think oh. that it's—I think issue-based disagreements become much more potent when they're driven by identity underneath, and— Again, that's why I don't think the Hillary versus Bernie race is going to be that angry, but I think that a different kind of race could be. And yeah, it's Black Lives Matter wants something. I mean, one, it wants something that offends, yeah, the sort of Silicon Valley liberal rich, or it wants something that offends the chunk of white blue collar voters that Democrats still need to win elections, right? And that chunk is shrinking, but they still do need those voters and and or it's not black lives matter it's something around immigration or it's something around social policy you can you know you can get tensions ultimately around religious and cultural issues between a party sort of dominated at the elite level by white social liberals and a party at the grassroots level that's a lot more religious i mean the democratic party's religious cleavage doesn't show up in national politics that much. But in terms of cultural difference, it's immense. And I just always wonder how long that can sort of be a non-issue, basically, that you have this extremely secular 
party elite and extremely secular donor class, and then you're relying on the most religious population in the country for your votes. And again, you get this all the time in the Republican Party where you have the sort of rebellions of the religious right with Mike Huckabee and, you know, and now you have the rebellion of the white working class with Trump. I just imagine a future where you have Democratic primary candidates who embody different kinds of revolts than just the one Sanders is embodying that are more sort of driven by ethnic interests racial interest and those kind of divergences. That's the long-term fracturing that I think Democrats should be more worried about than what's going on right now. I was trying to think of a good segue out of that, but <laughs> but that I think I think that actually I I, I find that convincing. What I'm I mean, you see this happening. You see this happening in Europe, the, right? Right now, in interesting you, you, ways too, right? Where this sort of parties of the left are trying to figure out. They rely in certain cases increasingly on immigrant votes, on Muslim immigrant votes. But then, you know, in France, the parties of the left are losing core supporters to basically the France's equivalent of Donald Trump. You know, you well, just, I think this is a case for why Trump is more electable in a way than Ted Cruz. Where oh, I think, I think Trump, I think Trump yeah. is more electable. I think he's also – Trump could lose by a lot more than Ted Cruz. Trump I, I has both, higher yeah, – he could lose right. by 10 points or – but he's also more likely to – somehow win, yes, or come close. I do think within the Democratic Party, one of the very interesting things that has, has changed in it is that it has become an, an increasingly important part of Democratic identity to be to be cosmopolitan, to have a, a certain sort of attitude towards America as a melting pot. Uh, there's really interesting research by a guy named Michael Tesler, who has kind of looked at the way um, racial controversies have become polarized among partisan lines, which in, in a way I didn't realize had not been true before. So if you look at Democratic and Republican attitudes on the O.J. Simpson verdict or the Bernard Getz shooting in, in New York, though which were both you know very kind of racialized stories, there was no real difference between Republican and Democratic opinions on them. If you look at Republicans and Democrats on George Zimmerman or even whether 12 Years a Slave should have won an Oscar. You see these huge, huge, huge differences on these issues that the parties really hadn't hadn't taken their own positions on, right? There was not a political controversy over 12 Years a Slave and, and whether it should have won an Oscar. And I think one thing that has been an interesting effort or, or sort of trend in the Democratic Party that speaks to what you're talking about is it has become a much broader idea that to be a Democrat, to be a, a, you know, part of that coalition in this time, part of the identity has been, you know, that 12 Years a Slave should win the Oscar, that, that, you know, George Zimmerman should be viewed, his defense should be viewed extremely skeptically. And I think the question for me, when I think about the kind of scenario you are laying out here, is what is the kind of candidate, what is the kinds of issues that, as opposed to Building that solidarity breaks it apart. Doesn't yeah, mean it and can't. It's, and it's, and, doesn't mean I can't come up with it. But and no, but and you it, need you need a catalyst. But I that's mean, a to take to take course. an obvious to take an obvious example, if you got a few years of trends that look like the crime rate trends in Baltimore and St. Louis, for instance, you would have some the emergence of some real tensions between white liberals for whom it's very easy to say. I want 12 years a slave to win Best Picture, but for whom it's a lot harder to say I support Black Lives Matters when there are five extra muggings down the street from my gentrifying neighborhood, which, you know, which is not to say that, you know, which is the old tension in the Democratic Party, too. Right? Yes, but right. And crime was a big split. You right. Know, but back, then it was. Then but, and, but then interestingly, it was a split between 
the sort of Democrats' old white working class base, outer borough New York or something. And that white working class base is both sort of gone from the Democratic Party in certain ways, not completely, as I said before, but in certain ways, but also doesn't live in those cities anymore where, you know, the sort of modern blue city is very polarized by class and and by race, right? And it all sort of holds together to some extent. But, you know, you can see it, you know, in the de Blasio era in New York, there are tensions. I mean, I just moved out of Washington, D.C., but I lived in Washington, D.C. until recently. And the implicit tensions in our Capitol Hill neighborhood around schools and education. And then just as I was leaving, there was a sudden Capitol Hill crime wave, basically. I think Tom Edsel, my colleague at the Times, wrote about a bit. The tensions there, they're not pervasive as long as sort of everything's going along reasonably well. <laughs> but when it doesn't, then they come out. And I don't know how this plays out in national politics, because, you know, in the end, you still have unity against the hated Republicans in the general election. But I can see it playing out in Democratic presidential campaigns to come. Bernie Sanders, again, is sort of, he's a weird figure because he's from, you know, rural white Vermont. He's, so he's not at all, I mean, Black Lives Matter protested his event. But if it were a Bill de Blasio figure running against Hillary Clinton, you would have, again, very different debates going on, I think. Yeah, I think that makes sense. Uh, thank you very much for, for spending the time with me. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Ezra. It was a pleasure. That was Ross Douthat. I really hope you enjoyed that interview. As I, as I mentioned before, there will be more of these to come. Please email me at weeds at box.com with your feedback, your ideas for, for future guests you'd like to hear, any thoughts you have about formats or even regular questions I could ask that you would find to be really interesting. I want to thank Panoply Network, the network that carries the weeds. I want to thank my producer, AC Valdez, and of course, Ross, who came and spent a, a lot of time and was really, was really thoughtful in, in this discussion. So thanks again. Hope to hear from you on this and look forward to more coming soon. 